This episode of The Amazing Nerd Show is sponsored by Podcorn. Christian, we know life as a podcaster isn't easy. Monetizing your small independent podcast can lead to nothing but heartbreak and frustration. We didn't even know the first place to start and how to approach these companies. But then we found Podcorn, a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as host read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. Damn it, with Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is here to support you at every step and ensure you're protected and compensated for the work that you do. And Christian, I love their mission statement. To give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when they monetize. Click the link in our show notes to sign up for Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. Podcorn, connecting unique voices to unique brands. Welcome, nerd. Are you ready to launch 130th Expedition into Nerdum? Preparing for launch, queuing bitchin' rockabilly track, priming engines. Now processing everything that has happened in 2020. Unecrypting files for comics, TV, movies, wrestling. Launching ANS in 3, 2, 1. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is Damon. And this is the Amazing Nerd Show. Christian, happy birthday, buddy. Yay, thank you. I'm alive again. <laughs> Were you dead at one point? Uh, well, is there something you want to tell me? <laughs> I've survived a lot. Was that a hell of a birthday way. party? <laughs> it was a hell of a birth. <laughs> uh, uh, Christian, uh, did you do anything special? Not that you really could for your birthday. Why well, did? Well, since Chicago is open, okay. we did end up going to a restaurant. Okay. And I did get a $125 steak. <laughs> what? <laughs> what does a $125 steak taste like? Um, Very perfectly marbleized. It was a tomahawk steak, so it was fucking massive. It was on the bone and everything, so it's like a whole rib. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was 40 ounces of, of delicious meat. Now, be honest, Christian. Yeah. Was it really worth $125? It was worth maybe a... Seventy-five. I, I know you don't want to insult the person who got you the hundred and twenty-five dollars <laughs> steak, <laughs> but I feel like you could buy a couple video games with that money. Yeah, probably. Okay, and you probably already <laughs> shit out that steak at this point, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I enjoy a good steak, you know, with the rest of everyone. But like, uh -huh. yeah, I don't know about a hundred twenty-five dollars steak, but hey, man, whatever. To each his own. Uh, <laughs> did you get anything else cool for your birthday, sir? Um, I got, you know, some, some more figures, you know, some anime figures, okay. uh, uh, Rem from ReZero, okay. uh, season two coming out this month. Super excited. Awesome. Uh, and then I also got a millennium Falcon Lego set. That's that awesome. pretty fucking awesome. That's really nice. And then, um, I have this one gift my mom got me uh, that I wanted to show you personally because, um, none of us could understand or explain why she got this for me or or knows like where she got it from. Okay, hold on. Let me um, put you on the big screen. Sure, yeah. We are Skyping. All right, Damon, are you ready? 
I'm ready. So my mom got me this uh, this plushie uh, that has my girlfriend's face on what it, the... and it's kind of like a mini version of her. <laughs> what the hell is that, Christian? <laughs> I, uh, it's hard to explain. Um, it... it is a picture of her in a face hole. And then kind of a brown body all around. It looks like a wrestling buddy from the 80s. Like it's. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Your mother gave this to you? Uh, Yes. That's that's disturbing, man. (laughs) Like, I don't want to be judgy, but like, so like, wait, she gave this to you at your birth, like your birthday party? Yeah. In a public place? restaurant. Yes. (laughs) I, it was the second thing I pulled out of the bag that she got me because like first it was like, you know, something normal, like like a poster. And then I see just the eyes of this thing <laughs> below it. Why? I was like, what? what? What is this? What, what was the explanation for this voodoo doll? There was no explanation. She just said, yeah, I saw this online and I just customized it. Oh, my God. <laughs> she's at that age now where she's like doing the infomercials at like two o'clock in the morning. I guess suckered in. <laughs> Are, is is your girlfriend totally getting a version of you for her birthday I, from your mom? I, I gotta imagine because it's coming right up. So and she bought our gifts at the same time. So did she pick out the clothes <laughs> for that thing? No, my girlfriend ended up going to Build a Bear to get some clothes. It only comes with like leaf coverings. Oh, that's <laughs> on it. That's disturbing, man. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> That explains so much about you. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's borderline like a sex toy. Like you got a sex doll for from your mother. <laughs> like, hey, there's, there's nothing dirty a about A little it. person-like version of your girlfriend's sex doll from your mother in the middle of a restaurant for your birthday. Right? Did I sum I mean, it up? You could say it that way, or you could say it's just a plushy mini version of my girlfriend. Okay. Okay, man. It's, it's, however, you know, tomato, tomato. However, however <laughs> you want to spin it, Christian. Whatever makes you feel better about this situation. <laughs> <laughs> my God. <laughs> so, um, you know, birthdays are very special days, you know, especially growing up. Um, did you have any like special gifts that you got like throughout your childhood that was maybe less traumatizing than, you know, a sex doll <laughs> from your parents that you'd like to share with the audience? <laughs> um, uh, I think, you know, I, I brought it up once. I did receive the uh, Darth Maul lightsaber. That was a big one for me. But the next one, of course, was Christian. Weren't uh, you I've 21, always... though? I'm talking about through childhood when you got the Darth Maul lightsaber. <laughs> I got that when I was four years old. Oh, I'm thinking of the Kylo uh, Ren. I'm thinking of the Kylo yes. Ren. <laughs> it's like, wait a second. <laughs> uh, the next one, definitely as a gamer, was the GameCube. I think I put that was like the most hours I put into as a, as a kid. You know, I don't think I actually had the GameCube. When did the GameCube come out? Was that before N64 or was that after N64? Oh, it was after N64. Okay, that was explains the, like, next why. generation. Because we would get basically like the new like Nintendo console, like all the way up to like N64, which I was Mm. I think I was like 18 by that point when it came out. So um, but yeah, no, I don't I don't think I've ever even played the GameCube. Was the GameCube like a a huge hit? It was a it was pretty successful. I mean, it was at the same time as the PlayStation. So the PlayStation destroyed the market as far as like game consoles went. 
but I mean, like it had all the same like quality games and stuff like that. Like the the big one, the big reason it sticks out the most is because I had True Crime of like Streets of New York, which you play as a, a cop and you get to do whatever the fuck you want. It was pretty much like GTA, but you you can kind of be a hero if you want to be. Of course, I wasn't. I was lighting stuff on fire left and of right. Of course you were, but- <laughs> because you got sex dolls from your parents. <laughs> so obviously, you had a very disturbing childhood. So I, uh-huh. <laughs> I already figured you didn't even have to say that, Christian. I knew exactly what you were doing during that game. <laughs> I still have never gotten the good guy ending of that game. I, I need to pick, I actually um out of my grandfather's garage recently, and I might actually use it for streaming down the road. Okay, that's right. Just to pull some retro games or something. That's right, and that's a little tease. Hopefully, by the end of this month, you'll actually have our YouTube channel up, and you'll be doing some streaming, right? Yep, I've said that almost every month <laughs> this year, but it's it's coming. But I've been smart enough not to actually announce it on the show because uh-huh. I know you. <laughs> but I now I know you actually have some downtime. Yes. So, you know, hopefully that actually becomes a thing. So it's kind of unofficially announced. <laughs> yes. Uh, Stay tuned. So, okay, so the GameCube is definitely, you know, the one gift you got as a kid mm. that, like, sticks out. Were birthdays big in your family? Yeah, you know what? Um, we didn't have too many celebrations. You know, it's I have a really small family. Okay. So, you know, birthday and Christmas, those were, like, the two big things. And they're six months apart, so, you know. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> nice. That's nice. Yeah, no. Mm. I think for me, it was probably the Castle Skull. I think that was probably, like... The one birthday that sticks out, like getting Castle Grayskull. I mean, that thing is fucking massive, and it's still something that I wish I like owned so I could display it. I mean, mm-hmm. but yeah, that was probably like my favorite like birthday gift. But there were some like video game consoles and shit like that like along the way. But I'm not a gamer, so those don't necessarily like you know hold a candle to something like Castle Grayskull. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, doubt. Yeah. Well, happy birthday, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Before we move on, make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, give us a five-star review and DM us a screenshot. Not only will we read it on the show, but we'll send you some amazing nerd show swag. Speaking of which, we actually have a review this week, Christian, from Death Deals Willie. Uh, they wrote Desperate for a Podcast on Vacation. Uh, traveled from Detroit, Michigan to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, couldn't fly into Myrtle Beach direct, so I had three hours to drive to the hotel, and of course, on the way back. I really enjoyed this podcast. The logo drew me in. I was extremely impressed and entertained by the hosts. They complimented each other well and don't spend time talking over each other. Quality entertainment to listen to about entertainment. Subscribe now and you won't regret it. Thanks for getting me through the drive, fellas. Aaron, the dad on vacation. Thanks, Aaron. We really do appreciate it. Absolutely. And uh, if you go ahead and, like I said, DM us your address, we'll send you some show swag. Thanks again, man. All right, Christian, even though Spielberg month has come to an end, we still have one more copy of the Jaws 45th anniversary limited edition to give away. All right, Christian, can we get a drum roll? And the winner is for the last copy of Jaws 45th Anniversary Limited Edition, Qui-Gon Glenn. Woo! Uh, Go ahead and DM us your address and we'll send you your very own copy of Jaws 45th Anniversary Limited Edition. 
Yes, and thank you to everyone who participated in Spielberg Month. All right, Christian, let's talk about the best and the worst of 2020 so far. Warning potential spoilers for 2020 movies and shows ahead. All right, Christian, so 2020's been a fucking dumpster fire. <laughs> let's not beat around the bush. Understatement. But, but... We've actually had some good offerings, even though we've been limited about what we could see in the theater and what's been released. I was actually surprised going back and reviewing the year so far, like we're six months in, how many like decent like movies and shows we've actually seen. No, you're right, but there were still some pretty shitty ones. Yes, that is true, my angsty co-host. Um, you know, way to bring the episode down. Uh, let's <laughs> let's talk about that for a second. Hold on. All right. <laughs> What would you put on your list of worst movies and shows so far? Um, I think the worst movie I've seen so far has got to be Fantasy Island. Uh, it's just, it's shit from start to finish. And it was, you know, at first it was an interesting idea. You know, you, you make a horror remake of such a fun <laughs> show. Yeah. What a bizarre choice. <laughs> it's Blumhouse, so you know that's that was another little promise. This definitely didn't help their reputation. No, not at all. It, I, it really fell into that truth or dare trap where it was just like it, it looked like it could be something, but it was so shitty and just terrible performances, terrible script, terrible cinematography. Just, eh, just a bleh film. Yeah, it's it's one of those films where you saw it before me and you warned me, so I actually stayed uh -huh. the fuck away from it. <laughs> But that was, of course, at a time where we thought we we're basically be seeing a movie every fucking week the way mm -hmm. the schedule was laid out. So I was like, OK, I, I could skip one. Christian could review this on its own. <laughs> but I'm so glad I skipped it. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. um, show wise, uh, do you have a show on the list of worst? I feel like I feel like you already know what I'm going to say, David. Uh, Lock and Key was just dreadful. Just dreadful to watch these kids that I did not care about have this adventure that so just frustrating to watch from start to finish uh, you know it, it's a show that had some good effects had some good concepts but just the most unlikable characters that don't redeem themselves by the end and don't push the story in a way where i want to see a second season you know it's it was just it was unfortunate because the first episode showed some promise and then it just really you know took a nosedive as far as character um development went uh, for me, it, it's got to be the turning. Uh, mm. I saw that pretty early on in the, I think it was January, uh, and I was excited for that film. And it, man, did I leave the theater just shaking my head and just regret <laughs> <laughs> doing a walk of shame. Like, what mm. the fuck did I just witness? Because the movie literally doesn't have an ending. It's so bizarre. <laughs> it's like they just ran out of money or something and stopped filming. Um that was with uh, Finn Wolfhart, who, I, you know, I think is a promising young actor um, that I'm really looking forward to <laughs> mm. watching his career. But this is this is definitely not going to do him any favors, you know, being on his resume. So um, an honorable mention to uh, the film I actually reviewed last week. Uh, you should have left. Yes. Um, I think <laughs> it's probably the first F I I've given on this show. Um, <laughs> there is absolutely nothing redeemable about it it was literally it, it it basically committed the crime of just being dull you know for an entire hour and a half so um yeah stay the fuck away from that piece of shit <laughs> uh, were there any were there any shows that you regretted binging this year so far no luckily it's actually been a really strong year when it comes to tv 
So, I mean, knock on wood, hopefully that continues throughout 2020. So, uh, well, you know what? Speaking of TV, let's go ahead and let's roll our glorified clip show, Christian. <laughs> let's talk the best. <laughs> yes, Damon, here are some of our favorites of this year. Best of TV so far, Dracula. He is a monster. He is the devil himself. I could be wrong, but I think you were having a nightmare. All right, so this is Dracula on Netflix. Uh, in 1897 Transylvania, the blood-drinking count draws his plans against Victorian London. All right, and uh, the show was created by Mark Geddes and Stephen Muffet. Uh, and they were also the creators on Sherlock, right? Yes. All right. And this is a BBC series. Um, but here in the States, we got to watch it on Netflix. Absolutely. So um, I believe they got it first, though. Those bastards. <laughs> Starting off, I'm a huge fan of the character. Um, I love Dracula. I love Bela Lugosi's Dracula. I love Christopher Lee's Dracula. Um, so I'm definitely going to be a harsh, you know, judge when it comes to this movie. Hell, I love Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, except for Keanu Reeves. Um, so I, you know, I love the character. I love the lore. Um, you know, I love all things Dracula. Mm. Uh, so overall, I thought this was a fun take on one of my favorite characters of all time. Um, I loved its dry sense of humor. I definitely think it was kind of like the best like dark comedy that you could hope for, you know, with this character. Um, I thought that Klaus Bang, um, who portrayed Dracula, does an incredible job of like balancing humor and comedy. Um, he just like oozes this charisma on the screen. Um, they made a lot of like unique choices with like the legend of Dracula mm. um, and retelling like Bram Stoker's original tale. Um, especially with like the first two episodes, but you know, I dug it. It was incredibly stylish. It was beautifully shot. It was gothic as all fuck. Um, um, it, it, but it wasn't just like the stunning visuals that like sold me on it. Um, it was like the performances, especially uh, Dolly Wells and Clauses. Um, you know, Dolly Wells played Agatha Van Helsing. Um, you know, this story's version of Van Helsing. Um, and it was all about really the relationship between those two characters. Um, Dolly West as Van Helsing basically like steals the show. Um, she reminds me a lot of like Anthony Hopkins, like betrayal of the character, um, from Francis Ford Coppola's uh, version of the movie. Um, just like super off kilter, chewing scenery, um, but fresh and different, um, and she's a perfect match for Dracula, you know, and his kind of like dry sense of humor. Um, there's like just this duel of wits, um, you know, like that's taking place. Like, um, well, like, you know, the fact that they actually have them like playing a chess game, like for mm -hmm. the two, the first two episodes, you know, might've been like a little too on the nose. Um, I felt like it was kind of like the perfect like setting, you know, for those two characters, especially watching them going like toe to toe. Um, as like a hardcore Dracula fan, I love the fact that we finally go on the boat um, that, you know, uh, takes Dracula from Transylvania to England. Um, I can't remember like ever like spending that much time, you know, 
you know, with that scene. Usually it's just like a little flash, you know, of just like carnage on the boat as Dracula arrives. Mm -hmm. So I like that we kind of got this like almost weird like murder mystery thing going on with it. Um, I thought that was really well done. Um, I think when it comes down to it, like my biggest issue with the series is the third episode. We've seen this kind of scenario like play out with Dracula before and it's in his lore, but it just felt really like rushed and a little bit too over the top to me. Um, I did it. I did think they stuck the landing in a weird way for the character. Um, but I just felt like, you know, they were trying to like do too much. Um, it really felt like I was watching like the last episode of like a really long running like series, which was weird. Um, like I skipped ahead like six seasons. So, um, but you know, like I liked what they were doing with like the overall theme, um, you know, for the character and like this whole idea, like this theme of like him being kind of like agoraphobic where, you know, all his weaknesses are kind of like self-imposed without trying to say too much. Mm -hmm. uh, but it just, I, it, I think with the time constraints that they have with like keeping it into one episode, um, I'd much rather have seen it like played out like for a, like maybe the second season or something like that. But yeah, no, overall, I really enjoyed this series, you know? And if you're a fan of this character... Um, or a horror fan, I would definitely check it out. So yeah, for me, I, I do share a lot of the same thought um, with the, the episodes in general. Um, one through three, you know, it's definitely one, two have such a has such a great structure to them, and really feel like I, I really get Stephen Muffet's you know Doctor Who isms right out into this um, show completely with those first two episodes, and then the third one kind of took a lot of the wind out of the sails for me um, personally. Um, while I. <laughs> I understand some of the choices. I, for me, it didn't stick the landing. Mm -hmm. uh, but let's let's get more into uh, like the positives and stuff. I thought about like the characters and such. Uh, uh, what we got with Dracula and Sister Agatha, their chemistry fucking awesome throughout it. Yeah, I love as you said the wit between them was fucking amazing. Um, Dolly Wells totally does steal the entire show. Um, I didn't like what they did did with their character in the third episode. But I did enjoy um, Sister Agatha through one and two. Mm. I definitely enjoyed what they were going for there. Um, I think one of the things I was expecting more of was, um, for me, was I, I thought Dracula could have been a little bit more clever, a little bit more, um, I don't know, villainous as a character. You know, he seems like, while it's great to see Sister Agatha... I mean, he did kill, like, a church full of nuns. <laughs> yes. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> and that was great and that, that was a good hook but I'm just saying it was <laughs> I love that you described that as a hook <laughs> decapitating um, nuns <laughs> um, like I was looking more for him to outwit them immediately in the first episode I feel now what we got in the second episode and how like it became that kind of uh, murder party as you were saying where he's um, like manipulating the exactly guests. That was more, I guess, what I was expecting from the character than what we had gotten originally in the first episode. So I was thrown off a little bit. But then as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, this is exactly what I expect from a Dracula interpretation and everything like that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I absolutely like I think the second episode is my favorite episode out of the three. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the problems I was having does stem with the third episode, kind of the resolutions and the truths that they were telling 
from that point. I just don't know how, if I agreed with it. And I definitely think if this was like a major series, as you were saying, and this was some, like a lot of these elements were spread out throughout different seasons and such, I, I think it would be really well explained, really like it would make sense. It would, and it would be a little bit more enjoyable, but it, this is just like, you know, the, the typical BBC three episode season. Mm-hmm. And um, it feels like, where are they going to go from here? I, yeah, I, I feel like they're not going to make anything else from there. Yeah. Um, but you know if it's successful, they're yeah. going to. <laughs> that's not going to be the case. Mm. But so. yeah, that's, that's pretty much my overall thoughts. You know, it's, it's very well done. I definitely say watch it. You know, anyone with Netflix should definitely pick up the show. Yeah, okay, check cool. it out. Up next, Hunters. You know what the best revenge is? Revenge. Your grandmother wished to protect you. From what? Nazis, Jonas. Goddamn Nazis. In 1977, in New York City, a troubled young Jewish man bent on revenge is taken in by a secret group of Nazi hunters fighting a clandestine war against a cabal of high-ranking Nazi officials in hiding who work to create the Fourth Reich. And this is created by David Wells. All right. Um, this was an interesting show. Uh, you know, It's got a huge theme about... You know what it means to be a hero and everything, because a lot of you know a lot of the show is about vengeance. Uh, is it are, are they getting are they heroes for killing these Nazis? Are they uh, just cold blooded murderers? You know, it's this constant like theme going on throughout the show. What's the right thing? Fuck to do? that! Kill the, the Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of moral um, high ground aspects to the show, and we follow this character jo- um, Jonah Heidelbaum played by Logan Learman. Um, you might know him from Percy Jackson fame or uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower. Nope. Uh, this is definitely a grown-up role for him. Um, you know, he's dealing with a lot of trauma. Um, the show starts off... You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do light spoilers. Uh, I probably won't... T- I'm not going to give you guys any big things from that happened near the end. But uh, we start off with uh, Logan losing... I mean, Jonah losing his um, grandmother. And then we find out the secrets that her, his grandmother has been keeping, which is that she is a Nazi hunter. Uh, and uh, we just kind of go on this adventure from there. Um, the the show is very fun, but it, it I feel like at times it has a bit of a tone issue where you know some moments uh, every time you get like a very comedic and fun moment throughout the show, you know you're getting like thirty minutes of you know very sad and horrifying storytelling. It kind of bounces back and forth, and like it can be almost off putting at times. Where it's like one episode starts off with like a whole comedy skit, and then the rest of the episode is you know, um, you know, scenes from Auschwitz the entire time. Oh wow! Um, so it has like so it's, a it's, tone problem. Uh, I I would say sometimes, okay. but overall, you know, I, I got through the show, you know, loving it until the very end. Um, I think the the show you know, really handles um, the growth of Jonah um, very well. You know, him deciding what the right thing to do, and you know, you're watching. You know, these murders kind of changing him from the boy he was into the man he's going to become. And, you know, um, you, you throughout the show, you constantly are seeing um, the lives of his grandmother and grandfather that were in Auschwitz um, the entire time, um, and like what they dealt with. And you see a lot of other stories. And it's it's very well done. Um, the, the cast and crew that you see in the uh, posters and trailers and stuff are very fun to watch as well. Yeah, I mean, um, how's El Pacino? Al Pacino does a great job um, throughout the entire thing. Um, you really feel his passion for 
you know, trying to avenge 6 million people, as he says, or 11 million sometimes. He, he, de- he de- jumps back and forth on the number of uh, victims that he's trying to say, um, help out. Okay. <laughs> I've noticed a lot, but... Uh, is Yeah. Um, now, is this, like, Pacino, like, post-heat? Is he, like, you know, chewing scenery, um, you know, and just screaming a lot? I mean, I love that. I love all versions of Pacino. <laughs> but is, is that um, this version of Pacino? <laughs> Uh, he he is yelling quite a uh-huh. bit, <laughs> but I I don't say like he doesn't um he, he doesn't overtake the show. Okay, I would say that. Okay, um he he's definitely more you know he's just kind of the the wiser older figure for Jonah throughout the entire. Hey show. man, I mean, give me more Pacino. I'm fine with that. I, I'm fine with any version <laughs> of Pacino I can get. So hmm. I'm on board. Um, you you really do believe a lot of the relationships that they have, like Jonah and um. Uh, Al Pacino's character Meyer Offerman, you know, they have such a really great relationship, and um, you know, all the way up to the end, you really you know believe in what they're doing uh, and why they're fighting the reasons that they are. Up next, Picard. We have an obligation to investigate. There is no we, Jean. Admiral, I am standing up for the Federation for what it should still represent. This is no longer your house, Jean-Luc. Go home. Picard is a follow-up series uh, that centers on John Luke Picard in the next chapter of his life. Um, creators Kristen Beyer, Michael Chavon, Akavia Goldsman, um, and of course starring the legendary Patrick Stewart. Tell me all about it, Damon. All right, so I'm a casual fan of Star Trek. Um, I grew up with Next Generation, so with that being said, Captain Picard has always been my captain. Um Patrick Stewart is just so amazing in the role. Um, strong, wise, stoic. He took the role seriously. Um, he brought this like nobility to it and like this like Shakespearean flair. Um, and what's great about Picard is like he grows throughout the entire series, um, as does like the rest of the crew. You see his hard edges kind of soften over time, and you get to watch Picard and the crew become really like a family before your very eyes. So what really like it boils down to was like Picard's character had layers, and every season, and like even into the movies, we saw more and more of like the real man. So with that being said, I was extremely excited to see Patrick Stewart returning to the role after spending far too long away from it. Um, The first couple trailers for Picard looked great, although I did worry that we were drawing like too much inspiration from, you know, his role in Old Man Logan. Uh, But with that being said, I still was really looking forward to it. And I'm happy to report overall... It was a really well done character piece that's not only like a worthy chapter to like, you know, the captain story, but to just the Star Trek universe. Um, so light spoilers ahead. I'm going to try to like talk plot with like get, not getting too detailed, um, but like we catch up with Picard almost two decades after the events of Star Trek Nemesis, which is one of my least favorite Star Trek movies. So a lot of that story, you know, this story is connected to that story, um, which at first I was a little worried about. But um, like to, to say the least, Picard is haunted and he feels almost like brokenhearted. Um, Picard has since been like forced to retire 
after he didn't like agree with a mandated giving given to like by like Starfleet. Uh, Picard was on a mission, I guess, to help Romulan uh, refugees evacuate, um, but then Starfleet orders him to stop. Um, and that's because this group of synths who were working on the mission seemingly go completely rogue, attacking and killing thousands. Um, this effectively causes Starfleet to take more of an isolationist kind of like approach and at the same time causing a ban on all synthetics. Um, so that's kind of what forces Picard to give Starfleet this ultimatum because, you know, he's very much passionate about this mission um, and he believes that they're going against the very code of Starfleet. So, um, but Starfleet kind of causes, like, calls him on his bluff and, you know, Picard retires. And I think he's kind of broken as a man after that. So fast forward, Picard is visited by a woman. Um, so we're now in, like, present time, uh, who's, like, connected to Data, um, in a, in a way that I won't get into, just not to spoil anything. And she's, like, on the run. Uh, this sets up this whole mystery that reinvigorates Picard, um, partially because I feel like, you know, his loyalty to his fallen friend Data, he still feels, I think, a sense of guilt, um, and regret for everything that's happened, right right or wrong um but at the same time i feel like he's also just hungry for like purpose and redemption uh we also find out that he doesn't have long um because of this condition um that he has um this brain condition i guess that's like accelerating so this sets off just this very like entertaining journey where Picard goes to solve the mystery. And I mean, this show, this whole, you know, first season is very much a mystery. He gathers this strong crew of characters that all can hold their own. Um, and I actually felt like I was invested in them and their story. Uh, the, the first three episodes, you know, overall do drag a bit. Um, there's a lot of setup and backstory. But once we're amongst, like, the stars, Picard, the man, and, like, the show just feels like they're, like, in their proper element. I will say also, they use their episode count wisely. Um, there's no filler episodes here. And it's a 10-episode it's a season. So there's definitely, you know, a chance of that happening. We've seen that with, like, you know, um, bigger and better shows. But, you know, there's no filler episodes here. The story does have, like a lot of exposition but it's hidden with like great performances and just you know great dialogue and storytelling and there's enough good action and uh just like twists to really like balance it out so seven of nine um is also in this show um and she's just a total badass um you know and i didn't know much of the character beforehand. I wasn't a big fan of Deep Space Nine. So, but I was really impressed by her and I wanted to like kind of, now I want to go back and like dig into her backstory. Um, you know, with that being said, um, there are a lot of timely themes um, that Star Trek and all great, you know, sci-fi always ends up exploring. Um, you know, what makes us human, living with regret, facing our own mortality, 
Um, and this just this you know, narrative of, you know, like with the refugees and everything um, and Starfleet, like taking such a hardline stance, you know, and like I said before, almost becoming like separatists. And it, it, it seems strange because it's very much against their mission statement. Um, but yeah, some definite like thought provoking themes, you know, that a lot of Star Trek, you know, stories tend to have. But I mean, these are just super timely. Um, you know, and I, I think it's just all kind of driven overall by the theme of redemption, um, you know, when it comes to Picard. Um, but something that brought me a lot of joy was just all the familiar faces that like popped up here and there. Um, the show just feels like a warm blanket. Those characters just have such great chemistry together. Um, you know, it was like you were back to like, you know, the next generation days. Um, you know, and you want, we're left kind of wanting to see more. And hopefully somewhere down the line, you do get that. Up next. I am not okay with this. I think there might be something wrong with me. We are, we are, what do you mean? We are, I just feel different lately. This is Everybody feels like a freak sometimes. No yeah, I guess. Oh God. Dear Diary, what the hell is going on with me? Sydney is a teenage girl navigating the trials and tribulations of high school while dealing with the complexities of her family, her budding sexuality, and mysterious superpowers just beginning to awaken deep within her. Uh, this is brought to you by the Stranger Things and End of the Fucking World producers. And then you also, this was created by Jonathan Entwistle? And Christy Hall. So I really enjoyed this series. Um, I literally heard nothing about it um, until Christian brought it to my attention and told me to check it out. Uh, after the first episode, I was like, holy crap, this has such a strong indie comic vibe. And then like during the second episode, I'm actually paying attention during the intro credits. And I come to find out it is actually based on an indie comic um, by the same name um, done by Charles Frostman. So that makes sense, I guess. Right. Um, so like the first episode, we're introduced to Sydney, played by Sophia Lills, who's incredibly talented. Um, she recently was in It, um, also in uh, Gretel and Hansel. Um, just, I mean, a mega star in the making. Um, I, I feel like we're going to hear a lot from her, um, for years to come. So, you know, when we first meet up with Sydney, she's walking down the street, completely soaked in blood in this like trance like state. Um, we rewind and, you know, through, you know, a narration done by Sydney herself, um, they use this whole gimmick of, you know, her doing, journal entries uh she was assigned by like her counselor to write in this journal to get her feelings out so like it's her voice throughout the entire series and her point of view and it works really well so but anyway so we find out her story through these journal entries and you know we find out that her father tragically recently committed suicide um and over the past year she's moved to a new school and she has this one best friend that's kind of like the center of her whole universe um, named Dina. And she's played by Sophia Bryant. Um, and like I said, she's her only real friend. Um, but then she finds out that 
she has started to date like the star of the football team, uh, you know, a kid who, you know, Sydney's not a huge fan of, and it just totally like rocks her world. So then Sydney goes off and like within like 24 hours, she starts her own relationship with like the strange neighbor kid named Stanley, who's um, also played by an IT alumni named uh, Wyatt Olaf. Um, who also played Stanley in It. So it's kind of weird. I, I could think his name was Stanley in It, right? So, but, um, so anyway, uh, you know, the whole relationship that she starts with Stanley feels like retaliatory. And I think it's more of a vehicle for her to eventually come to the realization that she has fallen for Dina. And, you know, all in the meantime, though, she's developing these insane telekinetic powers. So, you, you know, it's kind of off the wall. And, like, you've got this angsty, grief-stricken teenager who, anytime she gets emotional, it triggers these powers. So, you know, she's, she's fucking dangerous, man. Uh, <laughs> This show is the definition of a dramedy. You know, it it takes some serious subject matters and it looks at it kind of in like a lighter tone. Um, it's like 70% John Cuse and maybe like 30% Stephen King. It's pretty in pink and The Breakfast Club meets Carrie to kind of sum it up. Um, it might be a little derivative for some and it definitely like hangs its hat a little on nostalgia here and there. But at the same time, like I... You know, it has a lot of, like, cliche premises, but I feel like the story feels original um, and fresh. Uh, I think the show is at its strongest when it's really exploring Sydney's grief. Um, you know, with it being kind of about, like, coming of age and self-discovery, um, also, it's, it's mostly, I feel like the core theme is about grief and it's like cri crippling effects on people and how it could really like tear relationships apart. So, um, like I said at the top, like Sophia Lills gives such an authentic performance as Sydney. Um, she's great. And, and so I can really say that really with the rest of the cast, um, you know, I love that they seem to have like cast teenagers to play these roles, you know, not 30 something year old like actors. Um, I think it really like helped like keep it like grounded and give it more of, you know, like I said, an authentic feel. To reiterate some of the points you made early on with like, you know, they do a lot of tropes that we've seen probably a hundred times in a hundred different shows and a hundred different movies have handled the same type of things. And, you know, a lot of the times I, you know, I've seen it so many times where I'm like, this, you know, I, I, I don't feel for it. I, you know, I don't, it doesn't do anything for me, but for some reason this show was able to handle it in such a way that I could get behind it. I, I enjoyed the way that the can characters handled all the same situations that I've seen a million times. I really think this show um, has handled you know that typical teenage story with superpowers in such a <laughs> like fun way. Um, Sophia Lills does such a great job in this show, and it, I feel like this was a standout performance, even with you know her her being in it and other productions so far. I thought the show was very well done, shot everything. You know, you can tell that yes, it is you know copying some of you know those famous influences from John Hughes um, and on. You know, this, this show really just 
had a, such a grip on what it wanted to do that I think that um, it really just played off in all the right ways. And that's what hooked me in. You know, from, from the moment I saw the trailer, I knew this was something that I was going to be able to pick up and really enjoy. And when I, when I got into the show, you know, it, it fired on every cylinder that I thought it would. Um, there are moments from, like, early on in the show where I could totally predict where this was going to end. And even... Um, from like the very first moment she like starts to like activate her powers. I was like, I know exactly what's happening by the end of the show. Yeah. So, um, there yeah. is that, but I mean, it didn't bother me at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just ended up really fucking loving the show and I really do hope it gets picked up for a second. Up next, Star Wars Clone Wars. Why would anyone walk away from being a Jedi? We were trained to be keepers of the peace. Not soldiers. We clowns have mixed feelings about the war. Without it, we wouldn't exist. All part of the plan. The plan. Everything. It's about to change. All right, so Christian, we actually kind of did a review for the first couple episodes, um, which was the Bad Batch arc. Um, But then we figured we were going to hold off until, you know, the season was over to give it a full review. Uh, You know, right off the top, you know, what are your overall reactions to this season? You know, um... The, the end of the season really brought it all together, but overall it it was very slow. It's kind of what we got from a traditional um, season of um, the Clone Wars, but you know, not as many episodes. And I, um, that really took away from it for me. But that final four episodes is probably going to stick with me through the end of time. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they definitely like make it up to you with the last four episodes i agree Mm -hmm. but it it was very much a slow burn um you know and i've said in the past like i've never been truly invested in like the clones um so with the series so the fact that we started off and it was you know all clones for the first four episodes it was okay um i thought the bad batch story was interesting but, like, you know, I was ready to jump right into Ahsoka's story. And, I, you know, just having to, like, deal with a weekly release schedule and everything like that was kind of rough. Um, and then we got to Ahsoka, and then we had to deal with, you know, <laughs> you know, three episodes of her kind of, you know, finding herself again. Which, like, I understood the concept that they were going for and, like, trying to show, you know, how the Clone Wars have been, like, affecting, like, you know, everyday citizens. But I don't know if I needed three episodes of that to, like, convey that message. I mean, I I don't have a problem with the amount of episodes. I feel like I actually would have liked more in general. Like, different adventures that she had to go on that show different elements of what's going on in the universe that kind of build it up a little so more. What, That's, so what you're saying is you'd like her just different stories. 
Yes. I couldn't deal with more Rafa and Trace. <laughs> no, I, beyond Rafa and Trace. Okay. Okay. I could I could go for that. I just, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just the choice of characters that, you know, they have her, you know, hanging out with that kind of like, mm-hmm. I don't know, did nothing for me. Um, Cause I was pretty much over it. Like after the second episode, I was like, okay, I need to move on. Well, I mean, speaking of that second episode, it felt like a, an entirely pointless episode because everything at the end of that restarts in the third episode. You know, they, they build this kind of trust when they go, when she goes to save them and everything. And then it, the immediate next episode, the sister's complaining about Ahsoka again. And it makes no sense. No, I agree. That was kind of weird. It was treading water. Yeah, it kind of it was kind of off-putting, too. It was like, wait a second, mm-hmm. what just happened? <laughs> um, but yeah, no. Because I actually felt like I missed an episode in between, now that you mentioned yeah. it. Where I was like, wait, did I miss something? Did something happen? Um, so that was odd. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it, they were okay, they were entertaining, I guess, but I don't know. Like, I, I think the problem, too, was with the trailer that we got before the, you know, the season started. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, it's all based on the last four episodes. Mm-hmm. So, like, I was totally gung-ho, I'm ready to just dive into Revenge of the Sith. Um, and then, yeah, we're kind of, like you said, treading water for almost, almost six episodes, it feels like. Like, I, I, I enjoyed what we got through the clones. You know, I liked the Bad Batch team. I liked the concept of it. Um, I did think the ending to that arc was a little too predictable where they're like, we don't, we don't know if we can trust him, but of course he's still on their side. How did you feel about Echo joining up with them? It was just a little too predictable that Echo was going to join them. Like... Just the fact that he looks weird, he's going to join this team. But uh, I was. <laughs> You're a freak. Hang out with these guys. Exactly. <laughs> What's the message here, Filoni? <laughs> I thought it was, you know, I, I don't know. I, I thought it was a good end to his story. You know, I if just, you're not going to go any further, then, I mean, fine. I guess I just didn't care about his story. I guess that was my <laughs> issue. <laughs> and I had to, like, backtrack, like, okay, which clone was Echo? Um, so, I don't know. I just was never invested. And, like, and, and that's my problem with, like, the clones in general. Like, besides Rex, and a lot of that's built off of, you know, what we get in Rebels, um, mm-hmm. I'm ne- I've never been truly invested in the clones. So, you know, it's it just, I think it's just, I'm, I'm, I'm a different generation of fandom too. So I didn't like grow up with the clones. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I'm a nineties Marvel kid, so I fucking hate clones naturally. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, no, the whole, me. the whole concept of clones always turned me off right off the bat. Um, so I don't know, man. Yeah. Trust me. Anything time travel or clones, I'm usually against it, but I mean, that's a big staple of star Wars yes. is the clones. So, yes. Um, but yeah, no man, let's get into the, the final four episodes though. The siege of Mandalore. How fucking epic were these episodes, man? Um, extremely, but how fucking depressing were they? <laughs> oh my God. That last episode alone. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, Jesus Christ. But I mean that such great storytelling and everything. I think it's the is it shattered where everything's kind of like the the battles over between her and Maul. Mm-hmm. Is it shattered? Um and like yes. Order 66 is about to happen and you know it's about to fucking go down and there's just this sense of dread that's like suffocating that first like 5 minutes of the episode. Um just I don't know it's like the music and everything that's going on. 
Um, and then just like, you know, seeing Ahsoka react to like what's happening, you know, because she's like sensing everything and mm-hmm. hearing, you know, just the little like, you know, audio cuts that they have in there. Um, so, you know, time wise exactly where, you know, everything lines up. Just perfect, man. Pitch perfect. No, it it had me like gripping my chair. Yeah, you know, um, the way that they did it where like it's they're showing every motion. No one's talking. Everyone's walking around. You know, there's just silence and just slight music in the background. Um, you know, you're just waiting for the next, you know, the shoe to drop. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it was such you know heart wrenching like tension. <laughs> I know? love that Rex was resisting. Mm-hmm. I thought that was great. You know that you kind of see him like starting to shake and everything, and you know he doesn't want to do it. Um, I thought that was fantastic. Um, just a great choice and everything. Um, but yeah, no, I mean it, it's a great moment and everything. And like you said, it's a it's the kind of moment that will definitely you know stay with me. Um, so, but I, I, it was just so well done. Um, and then the last, the final episode is so cinematic. Um, you know, everything that you see, you know, like you know, fucking what's the, uh, the shot, the Vader reflecting in the helmet at mm. the end, you know, that whole scene, you know, at the, you know, the gravesite and everything, man, I mean, just a uh, bravo fucking Filoni. I mean, that, that's impressive. It, it, just the perfect note to like end the series on. No, I was actively trying to think, how do I screen cap this to make it a background? Yeah, I'm sure someone has at this point. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but like how did how she handled the order was way better than most of the Master Jedi. <laughs> yes. In Revenge of the Sith. Like she's she's fighting all these guys, keeping them alive, too. Yeah. And act like going through a whole army while like what Kit Fisto or whatever gets shot down. Kiati Mundi just gets shot down without any resistance, you know? Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, even like Plo Kloon just goes out, you know, in his exactly. ship. So, yeah. <laughs> she puts up like a fucking huge fight, you know? She survives mm. in the long run, um, which many, <laughs> many didn't, obviously. So, um, but it shows you like how skilled of a fucking warrior she really is. Um, and the fact that she used Maul, too. Um, something that maybe the other Jedi's wouldn't do. Um, you know, the fact that she's able to kind of bend the rules a little, you know, she's got that Attican spirit. Um, I think, you know, obviously kept her alive. Yes. Well, speaking of her and Maul, how'd you feel about the fight? I thought it was brilliant. I love it. And I had no clue that they mo-capped it. Um, I, I, th- I mean, how great of a choice to bring fucking, you know, Ray Park in and actually have him fight his mall again. Um, and, and, and the actress who did the work for Ahsoka was fantastic also. I don't know. We, I think we posted on our Facebook page um, just, you know, them going through the whole, like, choreographic, you know, fight and everything like that. And how spot on everything is. Um, just, it looked amazing. So tense. Um, just a great, like, face-off between, like, two, like, Ronin warriors um, you know, who've like lost their way. I just, I just love that aspect and that dynamic between the characters. Before we move on, this is a word from our sponsor, Manscaped. Fellas, are you prepared to unveil your summer bod? Manscaped is here to ensure your post-quarantine body is ready for the wild. 
Don't be the guy at the beach with a bear rug on your chest. And if you put on some quarantine weight, the least you can do is be as smooth as a baby seal. The worst feeling in the world is that first day on the beach and you're rocking your brand new European style bathing suit and it looks like you're smuggling some Ewoks down there. You know what I mean. That's why I love Manscaped. Manscaped is dedicated to helping you level up your full body grooming game. They have forever changed the game with their Perfect Package 3.0. The Perfect Package 3.0 kit comes with Essential Lawn Mower 3.0 waterproof cordless body trimmer and a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your manscaping routine. If you're in need of a chest shave, this is the best trimmer on the market. This third generation trimmer features skin safe technology to reduce manscaping accidents. Don't accidentally shave off your nipple like Christian did. You can also adjust the settings to get the length that you like, and you can stay on top of it with almost no effort at all. You can even trim our show logo into your promised land if you're bold enough. Go ahead and DM Christian and show us your nerd love. Be sure to use their crop cleanser to keep your hair and skin healthy. It's an all-in-one formula, so it's as good for your chest hair as it is for your skin. Inside the perfect package, you'll also find the Manscaped Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer, because we know how painful chafing can be when you're wearing your bathing suit all day. You'll also find the Crop Reviver, a testy toner that's designed to give you pep in your step. Subscribe to the perfect package and get a new blade refill for your lawnmower trimmer, delivered to your door every three months. For a limited time, subscribers get two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag at a $39 value and the patented high-performance reduced chafing Manscaped Boxer Briefs. Get 20% off plus free shipping when you visit manscaped.com slash nerdshow. Do yourself a favor and always use the right tools for the job. That's right, people. Get 20% off and free shipping when you visit manscaped.com slash nerdshow. That's 20% off with free shipping by going to manscaped.com slash nerdshow. Trim your chesticles with the besticles and tell them the nerd sent ya. All right, man. So those were reviews for some of our favorite TV shows of 2020 so far. Christian, when it comes down to film, what would you say? I know this is a big choice because we saw maybe five films. When it gets <laughs> down to it, what's been your favorite film of 2020 so far? I think overall, you know, action, cinematography, you know, just everything in general. I, I think Birds of Prey really put out a picture worth seeing on the big screen. Uh, and I definitely am glad that I got to see it before everything shut down. <laughs> yeah, right. And unfortunately, there was news that came out today that they are not going to be doing a sequel anytime soon. Ooh, so okay. at least that's the rumor running around from Warner mm. Brothers. So I'm not sure why. I, I'm guessing it's probably more of they're going to go just a different route with the Harley mm. Quinn character. Maybe do like a Gotham Sirens or just give her a straight solo film. Um, I guess she's going to be too busy doing her Pirates of the Caribbean. That is movie. true. That is true. We didn't talk about that. Yeah, she's been cast. Is she supposed to be like the Johnny Depp of that movie now? I'm going to guess. They haven't said anything, but they definitely have made it sound like it's going to be a female centric version of the uh, so is she originals. Like Jane, like Captain Jane Sparrow or something. I wouldn't be surprised. Okay. <laughs> really creative, guys. Um, I'll watch it, though. I enjoyed those first two films. Yeah, and I also enjoy the third one. Well, you're an idiot. Uh... <laughs> I 
We're not going to have a second half. (laughs) (laughs) You're just trying to sneak insults into the show, Damon. (laughs) Like I'm setting myself up so I can insult. (laughs) You got to keep that, though. You got to keep that in. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed Birds of Prey also. I just wish it was called Harley Quinn because it was definitely not a Birds of Prey movie. It was more of a, a prequel, if you will. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, whatever. Bakers can't be choosers, right? Um, exactly. I, you know, for me, I think my favorite film so far was uh, The Invisible Man. That was good. That was good. Yes. Yes. I really. I mean, Elizabeth Moss, man, she just needs to win all the awards. I mean, she's just fantastic. Mm, I'm super excited for the next season of Handsmaid's Tale that's coming next year. So, All right. Well, without further ado, let's go ahead and roll the clips for some of our favorite films of 2020 so far. Best of movies so far. Horse Girl. And what is it that you're experiencing? been having a little trouble sleeping. Finding myself places and I don't know how I got there. You have nothing to be afraid of. Do you believe in alien abductions? Sarah, a socially isolated woman with a fondness for arts and crafts, horses, and supernatural crime shows, finds her increasingly lucid dreams trickling into her waking life. Uh, This premiered at Sundance, but also started on Netflix February 7th. This was directed by Jeff Baina, written by Jeff Baina, and also stars and was written by Alison Brie. So we're introduced with, you know, to Sarah, uh, played by Allison Brie, who's this very lonely, socially awkward woman who works in arts and crafts store. Um, this literally feels like the setup for about a hundred different quirky, small independent films that premiered at Sundance. But that being said, we go on and we follow Sarah in her everyday life. Uh, we find out that she loves to knit and sew. She's obsessed with this like Joss Whedon kind of like supernatural show called Purgatory. Um, and she likes to hang out once in a while at this uh, horse stable that uh, she used to ride at when she was a child. Um, it's at the stables that we kind of start to detect that something might be off um, at first. First, I thought she might actually work there when we first kind of see her on there. Um, And, you know, we see her kind of like coaching this young writer. But soon after like another visit or so, um, it's obvious that that's not the case at all. Um, And like the owners, the way they interact with her, they kind of seemed like annoyed by her presence. Um, From there, like we start to get into Sarah's like true journey of the film. Um, You know, it really starts to kind of like the story really starts to reveal itself Um, in like this very like subtle, slow burn way. um, But I did think it was well paced and I love a good like slow burn like movie. So I was totally on board. Um, We as an audience, like... (laughs) We are watching this, like, quiet, unassuming woman, like, go on this, like, downward spiral into mental illness. Um, You know, and I found it really, like, fascinating. I I really enjoyed, like, how this film handled Sarah's descent. Um, It's very subtle um, how she starts to struggle with reality. We're seeing this whole, like, you know... Uh, story like through her eyes um in the first two acts we watch her slowly like connect these dots as she struggles to make sense to like you know what's like happening 
uh, to her. She's having this these episodes of like sleepwalking and like having these really like lucid dreams about this like white light and like you know these alien like creatures. Um, and she's like waking up in like strange places, having no idea how she got there. And there's also like some weird like time displacement happening. Um, we find out like through different interactions with like all the different people in her life. Um, and these people like feel like glorified acquaintances, which, you know, made the story even feel a little more like sad. Um, cause these were like, you know, literally like all the people that she has in her world. Um, we, we but anyway, we find out that like mental illness runs in her family, but, uh, she feels really desperate to prove that that's not the case. Here. Um, that's not why these things are happening. She becomes kind of like this disillusioned, like Nancy Drew character, putting together like these, you know, like pieces to a puzzle that don't really exist at all. Um, while she starts to like unravel, I love that it's not your typical Hollywood portrayal of someone who's sick. She's not stark raving mad. Um, it's very, like, matter-of-factly. She has these theories about clones and aliens that, like, make perfect sense to her. She actually believes she's a clone of her grandmother. Um, and it's not really to, like, the third act does she have, like, this complete full breakdown. And it's, like, after she starts talking to about these theories to people that she's like kind of comfortable with like her doctor and this guy that she starts dating um and she gets like rejected um you know because she trusted these people and that's really when like the director jeff uh banya um opens up the doors to fucking oz and this film whose style feels like super safe and almost mundane explodes into this like surreal experience um as you know we like you know really really get into sarah's psychosis in like a first hand you know way um we're watching her world crumble and we're doing this through these visuals as we like travel you know through her hallucinations that um you know last almost like the whole third act of the film so it's a really you know heartbreaking story um the script and allison Bree's performance do such a just phenomenal job of making you feel empathy for sarah um you i do kind of wish they would have taken like a deeper dive into like mental illness um it, it feels like very like surface level kind of stuff um, and, you know, at first, you know, I think towards the end of the film, I was really hoping that the story would be a little more like open to interpretation, um, you know, kind of like a la like Donnie Darko. But I, I you and maybe you could argue that they did give that to you, but that's not what I got from this film. Um, I really think what the film was truly like trying to convey is like how we as a society like deal with mental health. And how so many people fall through the cracks without the proper, like, support system behind them, you know, through, like, family and friends. And just how, like, you know, just, I mean, just support from, like, you know, such a broken and flawed system, you know. Or, I mean, maybe it was just aliens. I don't know. Up next, The Hunt. The last I heard, free speech still exists. Don't First Amendment me. It wasn't real. 
We were joking. There's been a killing spree. You gotta come here right now. You actually believed we were hunting human beings for sport. But you are. 12 strangers wake up in a clearing. They don't know where they are or how they got there. They don't know that they've been chosen for a very specific purpose. The Hunt. Uh, this movie's directed by Craig Zobel, and it's written by Nick Hughes and Damon Lindoff uh, from Watchmen fame. All right, and warning, light spoilers ahead. Uh, this movie's going to be released on video on demand uh, this weekend, so, I mean, people can definitely check it out. All right, yeah, um... Very simple story, very simple themes. Um, it's it's very much an action comedy. Um, I, I'm I was kind of blown away by the fact that it was so controversial that it had to be pushed back. I could see it on a violence element, but maybe not a political commentary. Uh, the political commentary it, is kind of just it's it's targeted at everyone. So, it, it, it do you? I mean, do you feel like it's hiding violence? Um, it's like more violent than other things that we've seen recently. I mean, they went pretty, you know, heavy on the battle royal, but and they didn't, you know, hold any punches towards like you know people's dismemberment and stuff like that. Oh, okay. So yeah. sounds like my kind of movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so would like it like you know for gore hounds would this be something that's satisfying? Uh, maybe for ten minutes. <laughs> okay, because I mean that it, I I didn't get that from the trailers mm-hmm. at all, so I'm surprised to hear you say that. Actually, the trailers really pushed that um, battle royal element for me, but at the same uh-huh. time, it, the battle royal is the smallest part of the movie. <laughs> yeah, I just you know you've seen that before though, and it could be totally watered down PG thirteen you know garbage. Oh no no yeah they I went guess this they is went, is for, they went for that movie. R. <laughs> okay, hard R. Okay, nice. all right, nice. <laughs> um. If I could get right into the uh, actors here, Betty Gilpin, this is her movie. Like, give her her own John Wick, please, because she is so good in this movie. Everything, really, everything about her character, I loved it throughout the entire time. And she's very simple; she doesn't talk too much. But what we do get from her and how she handled action sequences, like a lot of the action sequences, you can tell it's them and not stunt actors. So that that okay. really I really appreciate you know I I love that. <laughs> no, that means a lot for mm-hmm. an action film. You know, when you can actually tell it's, you know, the actual person going through the, you know, the sequence. So, um, it just brings a different level to, you know, the movie. Mm-hmm. So she she really was the only character I could care about throughout the entire film and wanted to know more, but as it, it's very light on any type of story and what you get to learn about anything in this character like all these people, you kind of learn about their characters by the end, but it's mm-hmm. it's not enough backstory to make you care. Uh, okay, they're they're pretty much cannon fodder, and then you get to the main battle at the end. Uh, it, okay, it's it's a fun action film, but at the same time, you know, it's not something that I would say anyone needs to rush out and see right away. Now you're at home, you're you need something to watch. Go ahead, put this on. Yeah. But <laughs> it, it is slim pickings right now, so. Up next, Gretel and Hansel. There's something wrong here. But it's so pleasant. Where are all the animals? And where does she draw milk? Gretel, there's a storm coming. This is your power. To see what is hidden and to take it. A 
long time ago in a distant fairy tale countryside, a young girl leads her little brother into a dark woods in desperate search for food and work, only to stumble upon a nexus of terrifying evil. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Perkins, like Oz Perkins, he crafted like this visual masterpiece. It's like dripping with atmosphere. Um, as a fan of the horror genre, it's breathtaking and it like checks all the right boxes. Um, it feels like you're watching one of those like vintage like postcards, Halloween postcards, like come to life. Um, it's everything aesthetically that you want from a film like this. Uh, and I can pretty much say the same thing when it comes to like the score. And that's by uh, Robin Coldert. I'm totally destroying his name. Uh, but uh, he did uh, the remake of The Maniac uh, a couple years back uh, with Elijah Woods. Hmm. Um, it's actually pretty underrated for like a remake. Uh, it's and The soundtrack definitely stood out. Um, in that movie. Uh, but it's subtle and a hypnotic and it's like the perfect match for what we're seeing on screen. It never like telegraphs. It always like enhances what we're watching, um, which I think is really important. You know, what I look for in a score for a horror movie. Um, the performances are all strong. It's a small cast, so there's a lot writing on them, but they all deliver. Alice Cridge is fantastic as the witch. Um, I think lesser actresses would like take this role and go over the top with it. Um, but you know, she is just like super charismatic and likable to the point where you like, you almost want to like trust her, which is pretty weird since she definitely wants to eat the little boy. Like there's no <laughs> doubt about it. Like, she, like it's to the point where she's practically like, you know, drooling over the poor kid. Uh, but at the same time, um, it, you know, you, it feels like an iconic role. Like her performance is that strong. Like I could see people like dressing up as her for Halloween and everything. Because it's, it's a very like nuanced performance where it's subtle, but she hits all those great like, you know, major notes like throughout the movie that just kind of gives you like chills. Um, just like with like subtle looks she gives the kids and everything like that, you know, the way she's like sniffing the boy's hair constantly, you know, just like these little like mm. nuances um, that, you know, really, you know, drives the character home and like her like overall creepiness. So um, it's weird throughout the film, though, like they all have different accents and i don't know if this is a choice um you know so it's kind of off-putting um for the audience um but you know the chemistry is so like good between the three characters that it's like forgivable um so with all that being said it should really like add up to like you know a good fucking horror movie um and it was good but it wasn't great um and unfortunately it didn't quite get to that next level um, because I think the story is so thin. I mean, this is, you know, the Hansel and Gretel story. You know, this is everything that you know from the Grimm's fairy tale. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much it. Uh, so, like, all these great qualities that I'm talking about uh, in comparison to like the storyline almost feels like overindulgent because they like you know like it's so scenic and they like hold on to these awesome shots and you know 
the it looks like a fucking you know uh, a masterpiece like it really does it it's just, just beautiful um you know like just a really great piece of art um but you have to kind of like you know fill in the blanks yourself as the viewer to what you're seeing um and i don't mind a movie like that but they got to give me more you know there has to be more substance to it and i feel like there's just a lack of story and a lack of like substance really going to it it feels like like a short film that they try to like stretch to like a feature length um and it just didn't quite work overall and it's only an hour and 27 minutes long so i mean it's not like it's a long movie mm-hmm. at all um and then like for i think part of the reason why um i kind of struggle with the movie is because like there's a lack of intensity with some of the scenes like spe- especially some of like the scare scenes um there's never really like a pulse pounding moment that gets your heart racing um it always feels like you know the horror is just like a little off rhythm i feel like with like a really good like scare scene there's like a rhythm to it Mm -hmm. and it it really feels like it's just something is off like pacing wise or timing wise where it's not unnerving it just never is like quite like effective you know it never had me on the edge of my seat like it it's fucking pretty to look at you know, and as you know, visually, it's everything I want from a horror movie, but there's something missing there. Um, you know, the scares never really truly land. Uh, so, but like with that all being said, like I applaud like the studio for like actually taking a chance on a movie like this because this is not your like typical safe January horror offering from like a big studio. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it was definitely outside of the box. Uh, and I think it's like a direct effect from like all the awesome like art house horror films we've been getting in recent years. And that's why they actually had the balls to like, you know, you know, put this movie in production and actually like, you know, put a marketing campaign behind it. Up next, The Wretched. Dad, mom's being weird. Mom's always been weird. What are you doing up here? Do it! Don't let her in. My son likes to play hide and seek. Can you bring him down? I didn't say he was here. You're a very stupid boy. A defiant teenage boy struggling with his parents' imminent divorce faces off with a thousand-year-old witch who is living beneath the skin of the woman next door. Uh, this was directed and written by Brett Pierce and Drew T. Pierce. So I heard a little buzz about this film a while back. Um, It was playing at like a few festivals, but like over the past month, um, this movie has been making a lot of headlines, um, albeit kind of tongue in cheek for being the number one movie at the box office. Most of these articles are kind of like more or less speculating um, at like a potential resurgence um, of like drive-ins due to like COVID-19. But it's still a lot of nice buzz for this small independent film. So I figured, you know what? Why the hell not check it out? It's on video on demand right now. So I just went ahead and streamed it um, the other day. And I'm happy to report this is a solid, in a weird kind of way, a throwback um, horror film. 
that I thoroughly just enjoy. This film is a modern take on the classic Witch in the Woods story. Um, lately, the witch subgenre has kind of had this like bit of renaissance that I've really dug. Um, I'm a big fan of you know witch movies. So, <laughs> but anyway. Let's get into the plot. Uh, we meet up with our young protagonist. Um, he's this troubled teenager named Ben who's come to stay with his father for the summer. Um, his parents are in the middle of this awful divorce. We come to kind of like suspect that something's happening with the neighbors. And Ben's really, really concerned for the neighbor's young child, Dylan, who, you know, he's kind of befriended. The directors are the Pierce brothers. And from the opening scene, they've set this like great sense of unease um, by letting you know no one is safe in this movie. And I think for a horror film that's filled with like young children, that tone is really important. So many mainstream horror films will have children as characters, but like nine times out of ten, you know they're going to be safe no matter what happens, especially even if they're like the main characters. And I think that's one of the reasons why this film carries such a nostalgic vibe for me, because in the 80s, in somewhat in the 90s, you know, there were a lot of like films focused on children and they weren't completely off the board. They were definitely in danger. Um, so and another reason why like it has this like great nostalgic feel, um, even though they're not like beating you over the head with it, um, it, it, it's all these like wonderful old school practical effects. Um, light spoilers, um, one of the witch's abilities is to wear other people's skin. And we, we kind of see that in the trailers. But this is all brought to life with just, like, great effects. Um, they do a wonderful job using lighting and this kind of, like, less is more approach. Um, showing you just enough gore to get the message across, you know, depending on your horror sensibility. You know, but I felt like it was enough to tell the story properly. Also, the design of the witch is just magnificent. This is just an absolutely gorgeous looking creature. Um, you don't get to see much of her, but like when you do, it's super effective. Um, like I would imagine like, you know, being like a horror fan in the 80s and seeing like this witch on the cover of Fangoria. I'm, I'm surprised that it doesn't happen, you know, in the next like couple months. Um, but the Pierce brothers are really talented directors. And like this film has great pacing. It's thick with atmosphere and suspense. And unfortunately, it really needs these ingredients um, to make up for the fact that the script is what I would call a little light. Um, it definitely feels like at one point, this might have been a short film that they decided to make like feature length. That happens a lot with like independent horror films. Uh, there's just this weird like lack of characterization. Um, you know, fortunately it's made up by like really charismatic performances. Um, but like some things just feel way too rushed. Um, ben um, is able to like figure out this whole mystery of what's going on with his neighbors by finding like one 
clue that was like you know etched into like their like front steps um he literally goes and does a google search and like they it takes him to a web page i kid you fucking not called the wikipedia and god i hope this is a real thing and if it's not it needs to be where within like minutes fucking uh you know sherlock holmes meets columbo is able to find everything out about like the very witch he's fucking dealing with also like it it has this plot device it's really going for this like rear window hitchcock vibe that you know it it's a nice way to tell the story but at the same time it's not super effective because there's like no mystery really going on for the audience like we know exactly what's happening um, so the fact, I guess, is kind of lost. All that being said, you know, all those little flaws aside, and, you know, they might be too glaring for some, you know, audience members, and I get it. The Pierce brothers really make up for these things with, like, just, like, great craftsmanship. They know how to build a scare and set up mood, um, which I feel like is just a lost art form at times. Um, it really was, like, James Wan-esque. Um, if I had to compare them to like another director, um, also just the aesthetics of this film really like help keep it afloat. Um, it's great cinematography. Um, they really know how to use like shadows and lighting um, to like you know build an effective you know scare. Uh, there's also really you know well done like plot twist that happens um it doesn't really like make or break the film and i think maybe i enjoyed it because i thought it was clever and i didn't see it coming and maybe i should have um but i felt like it gave like the third act a little more life so like overall while they didn't necessarily reinvent the wheel with this movie and you know besides its little flaws I do think they had the right formula to really just tell this really entertaining throwback horror film. Um, I just really, really enjoyed it. Up next, Birds of Prey. That wasn't the only dame in Gotham looking for emancipation. You fall in love. He's after all of us. The kid just robbed him. You betrayed him. You killed his BFF. What? You are so cool. You never. And you're dumb enough to be building a case against him. So, unless we all want to die very unpleasant death, we're gonna have to work together. Sure. Psychologically speaking, vengeance rarely brings the catharsis we hope for. Yeah. Are we ready? You blow up After splitting with the Joker, Harley Quinn joins superheroes Black Canary, Huntress, and Renee Montoya to save a young girl from an evil crime lord. This was directed by Kathy Yan and written by Christina Hudson. Damon, how'd you feel about this film? Alright, so light spoilers ahead. Um, I thought this was a fun time. Uh, it's a nice kind of reintroduction to Harley Quinn to the DC universe without all the Suicide Squad baggage. It's, it was fast-paced action with like all these vibrant set pieces that I thought really popped. You know, a lot of that we saw in the trailer. Um, but I felt like you know the bright, like rich color palette 
plus the awesome soundtrack really captured the essence of who Harley Quinn as a character was and really set the tone for the entire film. I like the scale of the film. Um, I hope DC does more films this size uh, with its characters. Not all these films need to be set around like earth-shattering events. Plus, I think the action was great um, and very well done. It reminded me a lot of John Wick with like their use of like wide shots. Um, it was impactful because you could actually tell what was going on, which is huge for me in an, you know, an action sequence. I want to be able to see what's happening to the characters. It makes you care more. So, you know, I thought the cast all brought their A game, um, even though I do feel like a lot of the characters were grossly underwritten. Uh, with that being said, I thought the performance was strong enough to make me care about them. Um, you know, and I keep on emphasizing care because, like, with movies like Suicide Squad, I found myself not caring a lot. This was the opposite. I definitely think it's, like, a head-scratcher why they didn't call the movie Harley Quinn from, you know, the start. It definitely feels much more like a prelude to a Birds of Prey film than, you know, a Birds of Prey film. Because uh, a lot of the, you know, supporting characters are just, like, you know, sketches. They're not, like, fully formed characters, unfortunately. But, like I said, with those performances, it left me wanting more from them. You know, I wanted to know more about the birds. Um, like, Ewan McGregor is living his, like, best life in this role. Uh, you could tell that he really was, like, bathing in the glory of being able to cut loose as this, like weird eccentric ultra violent villain um you could tell that like he was adding a lot of his own like personal touches you know to the character i'm not a huge like black mask fan so i was okay with that i can see where like more like hardcore you know <laughs> fans of the character might be turned off but i dug it uh, margot robbie is pretty much harley quinn at this point you know i i can't imagine anyone else playing her um so i mean it I felt like this was definitely her best performance as the character. While there's definitely some strange choices uh, with the narrative of the film, that kind of screws up the pacing. Uh, I didn't really hate it. I get what the director was trying to go for. I just wish they would have gone like completely full Harley with it. Since Harley is the narrator of the film and it's like told through her point of view, I think they really could have had this like bizarre avant-garde like sick twisted action film that like at the same time like really explores like Harley's like damaged psyche like have more scenes like when she's tied up and she gets knocked out and she goes into this whole music sequence you know give me more of that just like off the wall shit um I don't know if like today's audiences would be ready for something like that I don't know how like mainstream that would be um you know, so I guess we got kind of more of like the bubblegum, like pop version of that movie, which is fine. You know, but I, I just, from what I saw in the trailers, I was expecting a little more of that style, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But in the long run, I do feel like they captured the core of Harley's character um, and what makes her tick. The whole idea of like self-empowerment, rising above her like codependency and like all the abuse and trauma that she's like endured in her life. Um, and becoming her own person. I think that's like the character in a nutshell, um, you know, when Harley really like works. I, I share a lot of the same sentiments. It was a very much an enjoyable ride through and through. Um, I did on a technical level. I loved a lot of it. I don't know if you, and this, this is a question I have for you. Um, 
how was the sound in your theater in general? It was good. It was good. Yeah, like have, you didn't, didn't have any issues with mixing or anything like that. Because it might have just been my theater. Was it dialogue? No, it was more of like sometimes the music felt for me overpowering a lot of like the dialogue or the scene and there was some kind of weird choices with sound mixing throughout the entire film but it could have just been my shitty speakers at my theater okay it, it, that's a possibility did you see it in like a i've only a seen lesser, it once so far so a lesser theater no i saw it at like the, the usual amc but you know just every once in a while really okay mm. um like it felt the film felt weirdly quiet for something that had so much music in it i don't know if the atmosphere sounds now, were just different. No, or... it did have a strong, like, I don't know, music video mm-hmm. vibe going on at times. But I never felt like the dialogue was muddled or anything. Okay. So I can't necessarily... Well, that I mean, that was my biggest flaw while watching it. Okay. Was that experience. But beyond that, you know, cinematography-wise, everything, uh, color and everything going forward, I thought that was all beautifully well done. Um, and as you were saying... You know, a big part for anything that has to do with action for me, there needs to be a fucking wide where you need to see everything that's going on or I'm going to be pissed off about it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I love like you see all the well done like choreography throughout each and every single action piece. I mean, everything was set up to go from this scene to this scene. And it was so well done, especially like, um, for an example, the prison breakout scene. Mm-hmm. You know, all you could see all the little intricacies that they did there and the mix between, you know, who like Margot doing the stunts and the actual stunt woman, you know, do, seamless. Yes, at times. I agree. You know, I Especially thought it was so the well done. And scene with the roller skates. Exactly. You know, the car trace. So which I, that was also I thought that was an interesting take to do. I, I really enjoyed all the little pieces they put in um, story wise. You know, I, I do. I feel like. I hear what you're saying with, you know, it's, you know, Harley Quinn's journey throughout the entire film is kind of like, you know, she's trying to overcome everything and stuff like that. I kind of want a little bit more of that. And like you were saying with, uh, you know, like the moment where she does get punched and stuff like that, that could have been way more throughout the film. Uh, yeah. There could have been a lot more crazy things, antics like that. Uh, yeah. And it would have made more sense. I feel like we would have gotten a little bit more of that tone that you're you're talking about with, you know, her overcoming um, the breakup and everything like that. Yes. Um, I loved Ewan throughout this entire film. I thought yes. he did amazing as Black Mask. And I, I, Black Mask has never been that character that I really give a shit about. Yeah, I agree. But at the same time, um, what he brought to that character and how, like, flamboyant and lively he made that character, I thought it was fucking awesome. But I thought, I thought it was, it was generally, generally, like, scary, too. Yes. <laughs> um, what was it? Zaz, I, I didn't like throughout this. I, and I don't... And we'll get, I guess, we'll get more into spoilers later on. Mm-hmm. But uh, just, like, some choices they made with villains, I was a little eh about. Um, I did enjoy everything that Elizabeth Winstead's character... I Like, what they showed from the trailers totally threw me off when we actually got from the actual movie that's mm. huntress for those who don't know yeah. um i loved uh, black canaries throughout the film the cop stuff with montoya where they're trying to constantly relay it back to a, like an 80s sitcom cop show eh, didn't do too much for me yeah throughout i didn't really get that too much from her yeah I, she felt more of a plot device mm-hmm. 
you know, in the film than anything, um, where I could see them kind of like having her more in the background and like if they do a sequel or something, you know, introducing another character. Kind like of maybe, place. maybe she'll almost be like their Oracle going forward. Yeah. Or maybe just have fucking Oracle. <laughs> <laughs> How about that? <laughs> but all in all, I, like this was like a very well wrapped presence for Harley, Harley Quinn as a film. This was the better um, portrayal for Harley Quinn, I would say, between this and Suicide Squad so far. Like, Margot has, has felt like her through both films, but this, for some reason, felt so much like they... Maybe it's because they dived into the character a little bit more, but this felt so much more like who Harley is to a T, like 100%. Like, I thought this, like, going forward, if anyone needs to know who the fucking character is, just watch this film. Exactly. Yeah. You know? I think she always captured the essence mm-hmm. of the character is this... This movie is more of a Harley Quinn, like more of a genuine Harley Quinn story. Yes. Um, where Suicide Squad, I don't know what the fuck that was. <laughs> Up next, Invisible Man. One sitting in that chair. I found something that can prove what I'm experiencing. You need help. Adrian is dead. I went to his house today. He's not dead. I have a pile of ashes in the box that would disagree with you. He has figured out a way to be invisible. Only thing more brilliant than inventing something that makes you invisible is coming up with the perfect way to torture you, even in death. Cecilia's ex takes his own life and leaves her his fortune. She suspects his death was a hoax. As a series of coincidences turn lethal, Cecilia works to prove that she is being hunted by someone nobody can see. This is directed and written by Lee Winnell. All right, quickly before we get started, light spoilers, of course. So I like this movie a lot more than I was expecting. When I first saw the trailer, it felt like the Lifetime like channel version of The Invisible Man. Not at all the classic universal Mm. monster that I've come to love over the years. Um, You know, the original Invisible Man is this, you know, fun, mad scientist movie featuring an incredible performance by Claude Rains that's completely over the top. I mean, he's a cackling madman trying to take over the world. Um, The trailer was the exact opposite. Uh, But I got to say, Lee Winnell, like, crafted a smart, modern take on that classic film. The film is very different, but that's not a bad thing. Uh, This film is a pure psychological horror movie uh, that takes, like, a look at, like, real-life horrors, like abuse and trauma that haunts victims. Uh, From the opening scene, Winnell has you at the edge of your seat. Uh, We watch Elizabeth Moss's character try to escape her abusive boyfriend's house in the middle of the night while he's asleep. Moss's performance, like, during the sequence is just brilliant. And it's just great storytelling by Winnell that really just, like, sets up, like, how terrified Moss is of this sleeping man. And it really, like, sets the tone for the entire movie because you're like what the fuck did he Mm -hmm. do to her that she's going through you know this whole sequence to get the fuck out of there um what follows you know the scene is just a master class of like suspense and tension 
and it's done with like good old fashioned camel work and framing. The camel work like could range from like really subtle to like not so much and a lot of like great deliberate framing like in between um just like at times like leaving you staring at like nothing at like open spaces or like a chair or a couch um but all the while like building up tension and like questioning like you're like sitting there questioning like everything that you're seeing uh this is like the absolute like definition of less is more there's no like crazy cgi monster or like rash and jump scares that can like out horror like a well crafted scene um and that's what this whole movie is like based on is just like these well crafted scenes that it you know just shows you what suspense and tension can really do to a moviegoer um so story-wise they set up this nightmare scenario and like all great horror films they put you in the shoes of the victim like what you would do if you know you were stuck in the scenario um you're watching moss's life just completely unravel and you know it, it feels like she's just like slowly going insane um it's just such a tremendous performance because she really just carries the weight of the whole film on her shoulders there's not really any scenes without her in it um you know and sometimes she's just acting you know to nothing to uh, like i said a chair <laughs> um and like another thing, just story-wise, like just the conclusion of this film is just so incredibly satisfying. And it's such a great setup for a future film that like you definitely want to see paid off. Um, and it's something that I wasn't really expecting. So like my only real criticism of the film is I, I do wish they left you questioning her sanity a little more, at least in the beginning. Um, keep it a, bis a mystery a bit. Um, is there really an invisible man or are we witnessing a victim like suffering through like severe like PTSD? Um, but it's Hollywood, it's trailers, you know, they got to get your ass in the seats. I get it, I guess. Um, but go see this film. No, I had to say, I, I gave Winnell like a good little golf clap by the time I was done watching this film. This was very well structured, well done. Um, to get back to you, what you said about the framing and everything. Well, how, how about this? I'll start with your criticism because... What you were talking about with how it should have been more like suspenseful, get a little bit more of an idea of like her more, insanity more throughout of a mystery, it. yeah. I thought I would have loved a little bit more of that because we would have gotten a little bit more of the early framing that we got in the film, mm -hmm. which was those great fucking shots where she just walks off camera and you're just looking at space and you don't know what's going on. Yeah. You know, um, like the kitchen sequence uh, was like one of my favorite moments mm. where it's, you know... He, Obviously, someone's turning on the, the heat and everything, but it was just like there was a good long pause where there's just nothing on screen. Yes. And you have no idea. Like you're, you're looking like cause your eyes are magically like not magically, but instinctively <laughs> looking around for like little details to see what's going on. And I was doing that throughout the first 30 minutes or did so. Did you catch the knife come off the counter? Yes, I did see the oh, knife okay. come off the counter. Okay. But um, like the first 30 minutes of the film left you with a ton of those scenes where you're just seeing, you know, just empty spaces you don't know like when she's writing on her laptop is there something in the corners or stuff like that yeah so i was really enjoying that and i felt like it kind of slowed down as the film went on because i mean it was obvious you know there's 
an invisible man in the room at all times. Yeah, once you get to the attic scene, mm-hmm. and we're trying not to spoil the movie, but then you know. <laughs> and I think that 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 kind of stops, you know, those kind of moments, you know, at that point on, where you don't have those kind of, mm-hmm. like, super suspenseful scenes, you know, because you know that there is, she knows that there's, you know, her boyfriend is alive and haunting her. And I, I mean, that doesn't, it doesn't, like, create a lot of detriments to the, because there's a lot of still more shocks and things that happen on throughout the film, but, you know, I just kind of was hoping for a little bit more of that going through, mm-hmm. and I mean, it is, as you said, what we got from the trailer, it's pretty obvious. It is someone actually there. Yeah. But um, overall, I really did enjoy everything. Uh, my only, my own personal, like, criticism for the film was um, a lot of the, uh, like, simple effects that they put into the film were almost like it felt like I was watching someone do basic after effects like mm-hmm. with um his breathing in the cold weather um and then they showed uh, a couple like uh, wounds were very much like I didn't like it didn't seem like they blended it in very well it almost felt like TV CGI yeah. <laughs> right like mm-hmm. it wasn't like very well done exactly um, and they're brief moments that I don't feel like cuz a lot of times those moments can take me completely out of the mm-hmm. film um but this is not an effects movie, you know, for, for it being, because you would think, oh, Invisible mm-hmm. Man, this is totally an effects movie. That You do have a couple of effects scenes, but this is more about suspense and tension. Um, so, I mean, those movies, the, those effects, you know, or lack of, mm-hmm. don't take away, you know, from the movie overall. At least for me, where it didn't take me out of the movie. I would say at least what they did handle well was the um, fight sequences. Mm-hmm. I thought that was like for for there being a missing person, these were some pretty believable fight sequences. We get into this uh, one fight later on in the film, and you know uh, it's it felt like the guy was really getting beaten the hell out of mm-hmm. throughout the entire sequence. And I thought, wow, this is super well done. Um, and of course, uh, to get back to uh, performances and everything, Elizabeth Moss, I, I can't I can't imagine another person being able to handle this as well as she did. I mean, that's this was perfect casting. Yeah, I, I do love her and other things, but I thought this was like one of her best roles yet. Yeah, she's. I mean, from that opening mm-hmm. scene, and it was such a strong scene because they set up so much of the tension and suspense of the movie without a lot of exposition. So you know, by just doing that scene mm-hmm. and showing how terrified she is. You basically know the whole relationship. I mean, she does kind of fill in a few of the blanks later on, but they're like very brief conversations. You just know this guy's a fucking monster mm. and she needs to get away. Because, I mean, the the length she goes just to escape the house, Absolutely. it feels like she's escaping a prison, <laughs> which was great, you know? So you really are like, you know, on her side from the get-go. All right, man. So that's not a bad list of movies at all. I mean, for the limited output we've gotten from Hollywood, you know, I, I would say that's an impressive list. What's scary about it, Christian, is our best of so far, um, you know, list might be the same as our, you know, best of the year list. <laughs> <laughs> the way, you know, the, the schedule is looking right now with everyone hmm. pushing everything back even further. So we shall see. You never know. St. Maude could knock it out of the park. July 17th. <laughs> I don't know how that's still on the calendar. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, so, Christian, the one thing I will say is because of everything going on right now, 
there, the one silver lining is that we've been able to check out a lot more like, you know, independent films that I think, you know, with like the busy Hollywood schedule and everything with like, you know, the major releases, we wouldn't necessarily be able to see. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, not on purpose, just because they would have just kind of like fallen to the wayside with like the busy schedule, especially this year. I mean, yeah. we were talking about it like there was basically a film or two every weekend for us to go check out. So, you know, movies like The Wretched, unfortunately, probably would have fallen to the wayside. And that would have been a shame. No, absolutely. Like, I would have missed Blood Machines. You know, that's. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still going to check that out because a lot of people do really love that film. So, <laughs> not that I don't trust your review. <laughs> Maybe you need to be on drugs to enjoy the experience. I don't know. So, I, I most likely I might check it out. We'll see. <laughs> Is I'm going to come back with like an A plus review. <laughs> My eyes will be all bloodshot. <laughs> you know what I've been doing this weekend. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just joking. Uh, all right, man. So that's going to do it for this week. Yeah, it's time to close out the show. Before we head out, make sure to head over to DramaCityProductions.com where you can hear us and plenty of other great podcasts. That's right. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, make sure you subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review. Yeah, it definitely helps an independent podcast like us keep on going. And you know what? If you like any of the stories that we talked about this episode, make sure you go ahead and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and see the full versions of these articles, plus a whole lot more. Yeah, you can follow us at Amazing Nerd Show. That's your nerd hub for all things pop culture. And if you're looking to further support the show, go ahead and buy some merch over at Tee Public. They have shirts, they have sweatshirts, I think they have mugs, bumper stickers, the works, man. Absolutely. And you can also head over to ProWrestlingTees.com and find our merch there as well. Yeah, while you're at it, go ahead and pick up your favorite wrestler's t-shirt. All right, next week we're going to be talking Netflix's new series, Warrior Nun. And we're also going to be talking Fighter Fest and the Great American Bash. All right, happy 4th of July, everyone. Yes, happy 4th. My name's Christian. And my name's David. And that's the Amazing Nerd Show. Don't blow off your hands. Or wear a fucking mask, you idiots. <laughs> Jesus Christ, what are you doing? <laughs> Come on, America. Get it together. And I've learned something, too. I've learned that a flawless profile, perfect body, the right clothes and a great car can get you far in America. Almost to the top. But it can't get you everything. Isn't it great that we're all better people? <laughs>